Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to me, Nigel Hewitt, to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday, the 10th of January, 2024. And coming up in, in this week's programme, we've got more, we've got something about New Year resolutions. And you may remember last week we were talking about the friendship between two rugby people. That's completed by Keith. Uh, Bill completes his story of the vet who went to a foreign land or to, into a, uh, a very remote island on the Pacific. Uh, and uh, someone did something rather strange. He decided he didn't want windows, so he went and lived uh, in a bunker, and Sue will tell us all about that. The hurdy-gurdy days, of course, are continuing their story. And finally, uh, Dave goes to meet Bruce Watson, whose grandfather did some recording of Tasmanian songs. But, of course, we've got the uh, uh, sports report, we've got a report from the centre, your post bag, and now, as ever, we're going to start with this week's news with a new member, Manisha and Peter. Outlook News. Coventry City Council has been awarded £750,000 of Commonwealth Games legacy funding to support two major festivals taking place in the city this year. Money from the £70 million Games underspend is being reinvested back into the region, overseen by the West Midlands Combined Authority and the UK Government. Coventry's annual Godiva Festival, set to take place from July 5th to the 7th in the War Memorial Park, has been awarded £500,000 from the Major Event Fund. The line-up will be announced in the coming weeks, ahead of tickets going on sale. A proposal submitted for a new Caribbean festival, to be known as Caribbean Reggae Fever, also in the War Memorial Park, this time on the 20th of July, has been awarded £250,000. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Comedy City Council's Deputy Leader and the Cabinet Member for Events, said, We are thrilled to be receiving £750,000 in legacy funding for major events in Coventry. Godiva Festival is the highlight of our city's event calendar. This year, we're celebrating the 25th Godiva Festival, and with this funding, we hope we can make it bigger and better than ever. The additional funding will allow us to expand the capacity to increase the space in the park so we can attract a greater audience across the weekend. We will also use the funding to develop the sustainability of the event. Caribbean Reggae Fever is another event this summer which will see a celebration of Caribbean culture through music, crafts, costume, sport, food and entertainment. Across both festivals there will be opportunities for local creative companies to get involved and to showcase our fantastic local young talent. We'll be building on a theme of a worldwide welcome and we're already looking forward to seeing so many residents and visitors at both festivals. A total of nine cultural and sporting events in the West Midlands have been given a share of £3 million of Commonwealth Games legacy funding. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands and WMCA Chair, said, It was always our intention that the Commonwealth Games should leave a lasting legacy far beyond the sporting spectacle, as wonderful as that was. 
With this £3 million of Games Legacy funding, we're turning words into action. This money will help us to hold the Kabaddi World Cup and will support the organisers of well-established local events, such as the Birmingham Weekender and the Black Country Festival and the Godiva Festival in Coventry. Collectively, this backing will bring in hundreds of thousands of people to our region, giving a welcome boost to local businesses and provide valuable jobs and volunteering opportunities for local people. A Coventry teenager wants to show that the Duke of Edinburgh Awards are more than an expedition. After being selected as a youth ambassador for the charity, Gracie Fitzsimmons is one of just 35 from across the UK chosen. The 16-year-old joins a cohort of Duke of Edinburgh Award holders aged 16 to 24 from all over the UK who will advocate for young people by sharing their expertise on key issues impacting them. Together, they will help make young people's voices heard by speaking at events, meeting key decision makers in Parliament and beyond, and feeding into decisions to shape the direction of the Duke of Edinburgh Charities' work. Gracie, who is doing her Silver Duke of Edinburgh Award through President Kennedy School Academy, said, I initially viewed the Duke of Edinburgh Award as simply a rite of passage, but once you start doing it and see how many people are involved with Duke of Edinburgh, you realise just how big big of an experience it is. For her volunteering section, Gracie signed up to be a fire cadet. She added, I have now completed search and rescue missions, scaled buildings on ladder drills and worked my way up the ranks to hold the position of watch commander. As one of the only females in the leadership role, I want to break the mould and inspire other female cadets to follow in my footsteps. As a youth ambassador, Gracie plans to continue advocating for young people's mental health support. She said, organisations can learn a lot from young people and the Duke of Edinburgh is already taking young people's thoughts into account, which is inspiring. I believe that young people are often stigmatised for receiving mental health support and this is often due to lack of awareness. If there was <coughs> sorry, if there was adequate education on young people's mental health, then there could be a, a decrease in the prejudice. Ashley Williams, UK's Youth Ambassador Manager at the Duke of Edinburgh's Award, said, Gracie is one of many young people who have, who have achieved incredible things through their Duke of Edinburgh. As a charity, we're determined to put young people at the heart of everything we do and to connect them with the opportunities to make a positive impact on the issues they care about. And we, and we can't wait to see what our new cohort of young ambassadors achieve this year. In 2013, Coventry City Council decided to become a self-described Marmot City, which meant working in partnership with the Institute of Health Equity at University College London in order to improve well-being and to reduce disparities in health outcomes within the local population. In 2012, there was an 11-year gap between life expectancy at birth between men with the highest and the lowest incomes while the inequality between women in those income brackets stood at eight years. Coventry is quite a small and compact city, and there is widespread deprivation, but there are also pockets of severe deprivation, and it's a very diverse community, says Angela Baker, a public health consultant for health inequalities at the council. 
we felt that the Marmot tools, particularly the Marmot Review, gave us a good framework. Published in 2010, the Marmot Review, entitled Fair Society, Healthy Lives, was a comprehensive report that examined health inequalities across England and what could be done to reduce them. The key findings were that people living in the poorest neighbourhoods would average die seven years younger than those in the wealthiest areas. The report also found that the lower a person's socio-economic status, the more likely they were to live in poor health. By being a Marmot city, all policies and services commissioned across Coventry, such as housing and transport, take into account the impact they will have on health equity before they are implemented. Dr Sarah Raystrick, a GP in Willenhall in Coventry and co-chair of the Coventry Marmot Partnership, said that considering how policy making would affect health outcomes of the population had been embraced as a default way of working across the whole city, regardless of what sector people are in. Since becoming a Marmot city, Coventry's outcomes regarding health and inequalities have improved. The number of young people not in employment, education or training has been reduced from 6.8% to 3.5%, compared with a national drop of less than one percentage point. In 2015, Coventry was ranked the 60th most deprived local authority, but this dropped to being 81st in 2019. The proportion of people considered the most deprived in the local authority was reduced from 18% in 2015 to 14% in 2019, with this drop in percentage being higher than the trend across the country. Although there are areas that still need improving, the work and progress within Coventry has been heralded by its community. Coventry should be really proud of what it's achieved both in the improvements that we can point to and also that we don't underestimate the power of having a strong united partnership that is really striving for improvement in the population, Reistrick said. A move to act as a GP prescription service used by hundreds across Coventry and Dunedin has sparked uproar. The NHS Coventry and Warwickshire Integrated Care Board has taken the decision to stop the prescription ordering direct from March. The telephone-based service is currently used by patients at 70 GP surgeries across the area and instead will move to an online app service. But this decision, which some have claimed has not been communicated to patients, has left some locals livid. Concerns have been raised about the impact it, it will have on elderly residents who either do not have mobile phones or use the internet. Coventry Live readers took on took on to our pages on Facebook to vent their frustration, although some say the move is a good one. Tonya Wright said, Fabulous idea, less work. Unfortunately, my 77-year-old year mother requires monthly meds and doesn't have a mobile phone. Jeanette Treadwell said, No good for the elderly who struggle with modern technology. Tracy Padres posted, How on earth are our are our older generation going to manage? A suburb of Coventry will get a blanket 20-mile-per-hour zone and traffic calming measures, despite concerns that the council is rushing ahead with the scheme. Over the next 16 months, Earlsdon will become the city's first so-called livable neighbourhood, with new crossings and modal filters restricting vehicles on two roads. 
The project, which aims to tackle traffic issues and encourage walking and cycling, got approved at a council meeting on the 8th of January. It originally included a bus gate, one-way system and filters on some roads, but these were scrapped by the council after its survey in October found that most people opposed them. The survey taken by more than 400 people also found strong support for the 20 mile per hour zone and crossings and a balanced response to other changes. The scheme is intended to be a trial that could be rolled out in other areas of the city. But a petition by a local resident signed by more than 250 people claimed that there was not enough engagement and called for a pause in the whole project. Organiser Peter Gerlich said, Relatively few, relatively few people locally seemed to be aware of the consultation and said some meetings have been cancelled or rescheduled at short notice. In some cases, there are no metrics and the timescales are unclear, he claimed, but I'm just worried about us rushing ahead and this being assumed as a template for the whole of Coventry. But others at the meeting told us support in the community for the plans and officers pushed back on claims about the effectiveness of the scheme and its consultation. Cabinet Member for City Services, Councillor Patricia Heatherton, said a presentation of the potential changes 13 months ago was, attacked, was attended by a packed community theatre and had support from locals. People came to us and said afterwards, especially people with younger families, that they were really mindful that their voice would get drowned out with people just wanting everything to stay the same, she said. She and others at the council had also seen how a scheme in London's Waltham Forest had given the community their local roads back. She added, there were no longer the rat runs, it was peaceful, there wasn't the speeding, you could hear birdsong. And thinking, oh my goodness, we could bring this to Earlsdon, that was the driver more than anything about the quality of life. Mr Seddon also stressed the scheme as a pilot and that they will learn from it and it allows safety measures to be put in place without relying on council funding which depends on the number of personal injury collisions recorded. Its success will be measured by looking at traffic speeds, how many people walking and cycling and how many are visiting local businesses, he said. A petition has been launched to fight plans for new parking charges at War Memorial Park. The council announced in December 2023 that free parking is set to be scrapped under council budget cuts as the move would save £150,000 a year. Parking charges were first introduced at the Popular Park around four years ago and the backlash when proposals were announced led to the council deciding to change visitors to charge visitors only if they stayed longer than three hours. Under the new rules, all visitors will have to pay have to pay to park their cars with a 10-minute free drop-off allowed. Parking fees above three hours will will charge sorry will charge to be in line with the charges at the Coombe Abbey Park. The petition on the council's website, which has been signed by over 1,300 people, says that by introducing parking charges for the first three hours, it will reduce the amount of visitors to the park and increase traffic congestion if people park on nearby roads. The petition, which will run until March the 7th, states, a lot of people travel to the park to enjoy playing games, running 
running, dog walking and visiting the cafe, etc. It is also, as the name indicates, a lasting memorial to Coventry servicemen who were killed in the, in the two world wars and subsequent wars by introducing parking charges for the, free, for the first three hours. This would decrease the number of visitors to the park and encourage people to park their vehicle in neighbouring roads, adding to traffic congestion, etc. Here are the proposed daily ticket fees. Up to one hour, one pound. One to two hours, three pounds. Two to four hours, three pound fifty. A day ticket, five pounds. The proposed season ticket fees are car, 12-month season ticket, sixty pounds. Car, 12-month season ticket, Go CV Plus and Blue Badge, £36. Many readers are not happy with the plans, with some highlighting that it will not save money but that it's a rip-off to the public. Michael Smith said, If people like me stop using the park, the council will gain nothing and sadly the cafe will, re- will lose customers. While another reader added, I use the park a lot to walk my dog and would be happy to pay one pound for up to two hours, and but seems disproportionate that I will be paying three pounds, yet someone can park their car there all day for five pounds. The council added it is one of the tough options they, ha- they are considering in order to balance books due to the increase in service demand and inflation rates. Currently, nothing has been confirmed, but it, it is. But if it goes ahead, it will be signed off at a council meeting in February. Retailers One Stop, which operates the Kersley End Post Office branch in Coventry, is set to close in March, although the exact date is yet to be confirmed. The store has made the decision to close the branch due to the current challenges of the economic climate. However, One Stop have agreed to operate a post office drop and collect, a smaller and lighter branch format which will offer customers services from a mobile phone. This will allow customers to access prepaid parcel services and retain access to bill payments. Customers will also have alternative access to post office branches at Ash Green, Whitmore Park Road and Kersley. The full statement reads... Our retail partner One Stop, who operates Kersley End Post Office Branch on our behalf, has advised that, due to the challenges of the current economic climate, they have made the difficult decision to resign. However, to help mitigate the loss of some vital post office services, One Stop has agreed to operate a post office drop and collect. Drop and collect will offer services from a handheld device, allowing customers to maintain access to bill payments and prepaid parcel services from the current branch location. Coventry's Father Christmas has returned to the North Pole after his sleigh rides across the city raised almost £8,600 for local charities. The annual Santa sleigh is organised by the Rotary Clubs of Coventry, with cash raised being distributed between the Mighton Hospices and Warwickshire Northamptonshire Air Ambulance. Some of the funds raised will also go to the Rotary Club's three chosen charities for the year. St Nicholas travelled miles and spread plenty of smiles as he visited Walsgrave, Cowden, Holbrooks, Courthouse Green, Poets Corner and Charles Moore throughout the festive season. The sleigh journey around the, around the streets of Poets Corner raised most of the cash, with Coventrians there raising £1,171.75.
Father Christmas also held several static collections in at car parks and supermarkets across Coventry, a Rotary Club spokesman said. Thank you to everyone who is who has so kindly donated to the Rotary Coventry Santa Sleigh this year. A fantastic amount has been raised and we will <clears throat> and we are so grateful. We wish everyone a happy new year. It's set to be a year of huge changes in Coventry. Nothing remains the same forever, and our city is set to see several building projects getting underway in 2024. This includes the long-anticipated City Centre South scheme, which will change the face of Coventry, although that project hasn't been without its critics. Here are the five major planning applications which have recently been given the green light, with building expected to start this year. Coventry Centre South when it comes to discussing major changes in Coventry this year, this is the obvious place to start. New pictures of the proposed residential tower blocks were released late last year to coincide with a major milestone in the scheme as Reserved Matters planning application was submitted. Developers are keen to move ahead with the plans and, if planning permission is granted, work is expected to start this summer. The project will see the demolition of City Arcade, Bull Yard, Market Way, Shelton Square and Hartford Street and Phase 1 of the scheme includes 991 homes, 8,000 square metres of new commercial space and public open space. A46 Upgrade National Highways wants to upgrade the A46 to tackle congestion. Plans for the major road which links Coventry to the M6 have been backed by UHCW, whose Chief Executive Andy Hartley said last year there could be a junction directly to the rear of the hospital site with a specific entrance for staff and ambulance access. A public consultation ended in December and a Development Consent Order, DCO, will now need to be submitted before work can start. High-rise flats by the city walls. Plans for new high-rise flats on Paradise Street were given the green light late last year. The scheme also includes proposals to open up a hidden part of Coventry's medieval city walls to the public. This development will have 303 homes, mostly one and two bedrooms. 690 homes on Old Gasworks site. Plans for housing blocks on the old Transco Gasworks in Cowden were initially rejected by the council but got approval on appeal. This means that 212 of the houses have full permission to be built and can go ahead. The Abbots Park development will be made up of seven blocks between four and 21 storeys high, along with a commercial or other service space. Wilson's Lane. Work is expected to get underway on a new business park by the A444. The plans for the park and up to 73 homes were given the go-ahead on appeal last year. Christmas may be over, but panto season is still in full swing. Add a new production and a new production started in Coventry on Saturday, 6th of January. Community, pan, community panto Puss in Boots is at the Albany Theatre with a run lasting until Sunday, January the 14th. With music and fun, it's described as a fantastically feline family treat. The show starts, sorry, the show starts people from Coventry who are joined by a volunteer creative team. Together, they hope to produce something special in the 1930s Art Deco Auditorium. The lead roles include local actors Megan Malibu as Puss in Boots and Colin Adam Holt as 
as Billy Donut, April Royce as the Princess, Ian Finney and Jessica Moore as the King and Queen, Cheryl Inarm as the Dog's Body, Paul Sanders as Baron, Katie Casey as the Spirit and Chris Arnold as Damn Daisy Donut. Over 100 young performers auditioned to be in the children's chorus and it, and it was, took some tough decisions to whittle down to whittle it down to the final 50 cast across two groups of 25 at the talent, as the talent on the audition day was incredible. This year, the theatre welcomed a new musical director, Josh Deakin, to its panto family. He said, From growing up performing on this stage as a child, it has been a great privilege and full circle moment to be in the musical direction for the Abbey. For, sorry, for the Albany Theatre Panto this year and to work with so many incredible, incredibly talented performers and the amazing production team. He added, I can't wait till show week to see if it all comes together and a show not to be missed and I am very proud to be part of it. Albany's Chief Executive and Artistic Director Kevin Shaw said, It is great to see our new participatory studios being put to to great use already. The cast are looking amazing and who doesn't love a classic British pantomime at Christmas? Performance times are at 2pm and 7pm and tickets starting from £17 with family and group discounts available. Outlook News So, thanks to Manisha and Peter there was the all-local news roundup for this week. And now, of course, it's time to turn to the centre here. And here's Hugh to tell us all what's going on. Thank you very much, Nigel. Uh Yes, well, fair amount going on this week. Uh, we've had a communication from King's College London oh. uh, via RNIB. Um, and what it is, is a competition for blind and partially sighted writers. Um, so, the... Uh, they've, I'm going to read out their press release and you can, uh, you can take part if you wish. So it's, uh, they're looking for creative writing on museum, art or home objects. We welcome submissions for a piece of creative writing, prose or poetry, in any form or style is welcome, centred on your experience of a museum trip, piece of art or even a household object. Taking the lead from RNIB's motto, See Differently, we want to celebrate these different ways of seeing, beholding and sensing museum artworks and everyday objects. This piece of creative writing can be based on a real experience or serve as imagined storytelling, so long as it is grounded in visual or material culture as experienced by a person with sight loss. We're keen to explore and celebrate how people with sight loss experience and enjoy museums, art and objects. No previous experience of creative writing is required. We're keen to receive submissions from as wide a field as possible. Applicants from traditionally marginalised groups are particularly welcome. Now, word limits are strict. A thousand words for prose and f- or 50 lines for poetry. That's quite a long poem. It is, actually, yes. Um, the deadline uh, for submissions is 5pm on Friday the 2nd of February, so that's not very long to go. Um, and submissions and requests for details in an alternative format can be uh, emailed to them, so we can sort that out. Now there are prizes. Ah, that's, that's what's happened. The, the first, first prize of two... 
£250. Yeah. A second prize of £100 and third prize of £50. A panel will assess a long list of submissions selected by the organisers um, and uh, this long list will be reproduced in a booklet. Um, so there's various uh, great and the good uh, who will be judging it. Um, so they've got some uh, suggestions to inspire you and they say this list is not exhaustive. Articulate your sensory experience of a museum visit or artwork or object. Describe a museum access event for blind and partially sighted people. Create an audio description from your perspective. Portray a museum visit made independently or with companions. Imagine your ideal future access event. Review access provisions such as touch tours or the use of raised line drawings. Centre touch in your interaction with objects in a touch description. Create an imagined story inspired by a material object as you experience it. Uh, compose a piece inspired by an artwork, object or heirloom from home or engage with a memory from the past. Uh, so you must be blind or partially sighted to take part. You must be over 18 and a UK resident. These are nice and easy. So submissions must be in English uh, and only in text form. Um, so using <laughs> Word or a PDF. You can't that's use fine. audio then. No, can't no, use audio. Okay. Uh, yeah. oh, oh, hold on. Uh, okay. Submissions. Uh, uh, <laughs> submissions may be sent in as an audio MP3 uh. file. However, however, these should also be accompanied by a text transcription. Um, submissions should reflect the personal responses, feelings and opinions of the author so the use of AI, such as ChatBT, GPT, and if you can use that I'm very impressed, um, is not permitted. <laughs> um, please contact the organiser if you feel you have a valid creative reason for using it. Uh, one submission per author only and then uh, keep to the word limit. Now, uh, I have passed this information on to Jess Eastman who runs the uh, creative writing group and I'm sure there are going to be plenty of people um, in that group who would like to take part but it doesn't have to be just them it's budding budding people who want anybody yes. else yes right. um uh, julia springer hirons i'm looking at you oh really uh, yes <laughs> well, julia julia often writes really quite interesting yes, things she so does. Yes. Uh, anyway uh, as a, a shout out for julia thousand words or 50 lines of poetry that's right yeah. yeah uh but anybody can take part um so if you'd like to take part and you need a bit of help to uh, to submit then we will absolutely be there for you uh, so the 2nd of February um, if you want any more details give us a call on 024-7671-7522 whilst we're talking about creative things um, we're going to be starting um, a drama group project uh, now uh, this is going to be run by Cameron Vernon um, who uh, some of you will know uh, volunteers here at the centre uh, and what it's going to it's, gonna, it's called Hourglass I don't know why, actually. I'll have to ask Cameron why it's called Hourglass. <laughs> anyway, it's called Hourglass. Um, it's going to be starting on the 6th of March, uh, and it's going to run for eight weeks. Uh, so uh, so it's a, it's a defined project. This is a sort of tryout, if you like. Uh, so we're going to run for eight weeks. Then uh, there'll be a performance um, of something, we hope, in the 9th. Uh, and if it all goes swimmingly well and is terribly successful, then we will add it to our regular uh, list of activities that we, we do here. Um, it's going to be an evening group, so, uh, so it's Wednesdays uh, from <coughs> 6.30 to 8.30. Um, if you would be interested in taking part, 
uh, then uh, do give us a call and we will get your name on the list. There are already a few people who signed up, well, quite a number of people who signed up, actually, but it's one of those things uh, where, really, the more, the merrier. So that's so that's where well, so where they can perform it. Uh, we don't know. We're looking no. at we're looking at uh, options, but as we have a very good relationship, as you know, with the Criterion Theatre, um, and yeah. it may be that we can squeeze in there. But oh, otherwise, the there are other options. <laughs> yes, good. Uh, plenty of them, really. So we'll try and. But we'll probably it won't be at the centre. We we hope it'll be somewhere <laughs> else so that we can widen the audience yeah. a bit. So, um, uh, so that's all good. Right. Um, I mentioned last week about some new products that we were getting in. Uh, so we have our new, uh, the new uh, watches that have come in. So we, we've replenished our supply, and we have the USB community players, uh, which are the RNIB's um, uh, USB media players, uh, and which are perfectly sound. Uh, so do come in if you need one um, and. Uh, and get one if you are using or have had or still have a um, a Sonic 2 player from King's Audio the little black ones or the larger black ones with the yellow buttons on and it's not working very well it's probably because you leave it plugged in all the time which probably means that your battery uh, may well have um well, died. I, died. <laughs> I call it exploded. It just sort of it just expands and uh, and uh, and doesn't hold charge anymore. Um, if that is the case, we do have replacement batteries available for seven pounds here. So those King's Audio uh, units are really very good, um, and they're nice and they feel good. Uh, and you can um, absolutely bring yours back to life if it is the battery that is uh, going wrong. So you can come and talk to us um, about that, and uh, we will help you. We've got those very nice little square cube ones. Too. Yes, they're, I've they're got one of those. Yes. before you got yours. Yes. And I'm very impressed with it. They're, they're very good quality sound quality. Quality. and very inexpensive. Very inexpensive. I think we're selling them for about twenty quid. Yeah. And they, yeah. um, the thing is with those, the buttons are quite tiny. Very small. Absolutely. Um, yes. But yeah. actually, once you get used to them, yeah. um, they, they, you know, you know where things are. They're not unusable, not by a long chalk. Uh, but uh, they are small enough to fit in your pocket. Absolutely. Yeah. They're tiny yeah. things. So very, very impressive. Very good. So you can. Uh, they're radios and USB uh, media players as well. So lots of options on that front. Um, We've also uh, replenished our supply of broad felt-tip pens, which uh, a lot of people find um, very useful uh, for making notes to yourselves. If you're having a, you know, like the doctor's trying to tell you something and you, you're scribbling it down uh, on the page, then uh, these uh, thick black felt-tip pens uh, give you a fighting chance of being able to read back what you've written down. So uh, a lot of people find them very useful. So we have a, you know, a, an abundance of those and they're available for a pound each. Now, um, as sometimes happens, um, a little bit of paper comes into us and it goes down the back of the uh, down the back of the uh, of the cupboard in in reception. Anyway, we retrieved this one bit of paper yesterday. And we thought, oh gosh, we really ought to talk about this. Um, it is another new product, and it's from um, Cobalt, uh, the, the Norfolk company that uh, supplies with a lot of talking products, including the watches. And what it is is a Cobalt Speechmaster talking air fryer. Now, air fryer, air fryer. <laughs> now, a lot of people, uh, you know, <laughs> the, a lot of people, uh, you know, are finding air fryers yes. are super good, mm. um, and uh, they 
for small amounts that you might otherwise turn the big oven f- on for, um, particularly doing like oven chips and things apparently, and uh, chicken nuggets, and I'm hoping other more healthy things as well. Um, <laughs> uh, they're really, really good. Um, so, uh, so the, the, the document says, so all the advantages of air frying with the inclusion of speech. Uh, so, uh, a safe and fast way of cooking. It's got a four litre capacity. So, it, it's big, but not super, super big. Um, energy efficient. It's got manual settings from 80 degrees to 200 degrees, um, and a timer that goes from one to 60 minutes. There are preset categories on there for meat, fish, vegetables, poultry, and potatoes. All functions are spoken in a clear mail voice and it has an easy clean non-stick dishwasher safe pan and grill um, and that is available uh, directly from Cobalt for £99.95p which you know admittedly is for something similar that doesn't talk is a little bit more expensive there's no doubt about it but how many out there can you find that talk? You know, so um, so these are the same people who uh, make talking microwaves. So if you ha- and talking weighing scales and various other things. So if you have a talking kitchen of any kind and you fancy um, a talking air fryer, it's definitely worth coming and. Uh, you know, get, getting yourself hold of one of those, or we you can. Got one here yet. We do not have one here. No, uh, it's not the sort of thing I would have in stock. I have to say, because you <laughs> never know. Like Using the kitchen here. Well, we we, we 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 might do. Look, you never know. Sorry, we I might. Mean, no, we popping might. Ideas in yes. your mind. Yes, <laughs> popping ideas that cost me money. Of course, uh, into my um, mind. Yes, <laughs> there we are. I try yes. not to do that. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, very pleased to say that uh, talking of cooking, we've got the cooking group restarting next week. So that starts on. Thursday next week I think that group uh, for the next six weeks um, is is full but if you fancy um, uh, joining a future cooking course uh, then do give us a call uh, at the centre talk to uh, Heather or Carol and they will put you on the list uh, for the next time that the cooking goes on and uh, very pleased to welcome Coody back after she was off uh, off sick for the last uh, m- month or so last year so she's now back in the office uh, she's actually moved offices now so if you need to see Coody well you can ask at reception uh, but she's also now in Boston Lodge in the, in the library room that is her new office um, I think that's about it for this week it's that's pretty comprehensive, I reckon. Quite a, quite a lot going on. So. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next week. You will, yeah. Thank you very much. What about our 16-year-old darts hero, then? But, of course, is darts a sport? Maybe Sarah will have something to say about it in her sports report. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. And welcome to Sport with Sarah. Now, today I'm going to be covering, surprise, surprise, football, rugby and tennis. Because to be truthful, at the moment, there isn't a lot of sport on. Yes, I know there's the snooker, but I'm really not into snooker. I hope you'll forgive me for that. So, let's start off with the football. Right, last Saturday was the day that always fills City supporters' hearts with trepidation. The third round of the FA Cup, which although it's the third round, it's the first round which features teams from the Premiership 
and the Championship, so that includes Coventry. And we were to play Oxford United. Now, everybody, I think, or certainly every City supporter, remembers with dread and fear the loss against Sutton United and then Wrexham Town when both of them weren't even in the English leagues. They were both non-league clubs. Oh, yes, we remember those well. Anyway, after seven minutes, up steps one of our Jamaican strikers, Latibodier, and scores. He clearly hadn't read the script, but then they equalised after about eight minutes. 1-1. One, one. But then, roll on Ben Sheaf. Again, scores. Coventry 2, Oxford 1. Whoa, this is looking hopeful. And it looked even more hopeful by the end of the first half when our other Jamaican international, Casey Palmer, made it 3-1. 3-1 at half-time. I can't cope, I can't cope. Then he got even crazier because Callum O'Hare, who we love to sing one of our own songs about, stepped up to convert a penalty. 4-1. No, this isn't right. They're going to make a comeback. And they did, sort of, well, they scored one more goal before substitute Matthew Gordon scored a brace. So that made it six goals to two. Six-two. We're in the fourth round. We're in the hat for the next round. Now, I'm recording this on Monday afternoon and the draw is at 8pm. But it, whoever we get will be mentioned in the stop press at the very end of this article. I like the villa at home because we all know what we do to the villa. Mmm, it rhymes with sit. Yes, I said sit. Yes. And on, le on Saturday we play another team who we like to sit on, Leicester City. Now you may remember we played Leicester in the first match of this year's campaign and we lost just but Leicester were only relegated last year and they are runaway leaders of our division now this match is a 12:30 kickoff so whether you're going to the ground and it's in Coventry or you're going to be listening to it like I am on CWR don't forget, 12.30. Now, moving to our lower league clubs, which I have been calling Southern League Premier Midlands, and now find it's called the Southern League Premier Central. Oh, well, what's a bit of difference between Central and Midlands? We're doing rather well in that. Well, our local teams are. At the weekend, Leamington travelled away to Berkhamsted and came away with a 2-0 victory. Stratford entertained Stamford 
and beat them 2-1. And Nuneaton Borough played on Friday, I believe, and drew drew with Hitchin. I think it was 1-1. But anyway, they drew. And this means that, as I promised you last week, I would check the table. Leamington are second. Yes! Stratford are seventh, which is blooming good for a team that spent most of last year fighting relegation. And Nuneaton are twelfth, which really, when you think of the situation at the moment with their ground and their finances, and now their managers left and their assistant managers taken over. Twelfth out of 22. Ain't that bad. So well done, our local lads. You're doing us proud. Just to get away from football. Yes, you all shout. I'm now going to talk about Coventry Rugby Club. They didn't actually have a match this week. But, so I'm going to take you all back to New Year's Day. New Year's Day 2024. I'm not going any further than that. Right, just six days after their victory against Nottingham. The answer I forgot to give you to the quiz. Not Northampton, as Elaine said. But, hey-ho. They went to Bedford to play the blues and I assure you it was Bedford who was singing the blues Coventry came away with a 19 points to 34 win that's even more outstanding because I don't think Bedford have lost at home this season I'm always a bit raised eyebrows when I hear talk of Bedford because I'm sure me being the anorak, I'm not the only one that remembers shortly after Coventry were relegated from the old Division 1, they were so desperate to get back there. There was talk about merging with Bedford so that they could sort of share or take over their League 1 status. Anyway, Bedford... Ah, well, at the time of the match, they were below Coventry, but they're probably now above us because we got two matches in hand. Now, if you're looking to go to support our boys this weekend, it looks from the BBC website as if the match, which again is against Nottingham at home, but on Friday, so that's Friday the 12th, So if you're listening to this on the stick, you better hurry up and get there. But it's a quarter to eight kick-off. Now, on to warmer climbs. Oh, warmer climbs. Australia. The tennis. The Open starts on Sunday. Mm Mm-hmm. Sunday. Now, whilst many Brits are playing the qualifying matches to try and get in in that final ranking place to get in. One person, not British, but who definitely won't be there, sadly, is Rafa Nadal. You may remember that last week I used Rafa as one of my quiz questions and said he was making a return. 
Well, he did return and he won his first two matches in straight sets. He took his third match first set and the second match actually went second set and he got game point. But after he lost that and had to go three sets, he had to take an injury break during that third set and I'm afraid it's his hip again. So he's gone back to Spain, well, Mallorca, I guess, for his final bit and of recuperation and recovery and rehab and physio and everything, no doubt, that money can throw at it. Shame about that, Rafa, but really do listen to your body. However, somebody who definitely will be there is Emma Raducanu. Now, you may remember again last week, I predicted she would be in because I said it needed just one more person from the main draw to withdraw and she'd be in. I don't fully understand it, but because of a time lapse between when she took her long injury break and now she's been allowed to freeze her ranking position. So although she's actually ranked 301, her frozen ranking point is the reverse, 103. So that's why she is now in the main draw for the US Open. And while we're talking about Ms Raducanu, Regular listeners will know that I've been a little bit, shall we say, sarcastic about the way she's gone through coaches like, well, running water, basically. But she has gone back to her coach who coached her when she was 10, Nick Cavaday. I've read lots of articles and I don't think he was the one who coached her at the time she won the US. I'm pretty sure that was the woman, which would help. But anyway, Nick has been an expert with the juniors and for years coached at the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association Academy for Juniors. And he has been helping her with her rehab and her therapies and he's been over in Australia with her. And so out of the blue, she just announced, yep, he is now my coach. And so now, listeners, we have the stop press. It is now Monday evening and I have just listened to the FA Cup fourth round draw. And you probably know, particularly if you're interested in City, but we have drawn... Sheffield Wednesday away at Hillsborough. Now, I dare not say, but it is kind of a winnable match. But it's one of them that, you know, I think, oh, fear the worst and hope for the best. Sheffield Wednesday at the moment are at the very bottom of our league, having only been promoted from Division 1 last season. And recently, over the Christmas break, we beat them 2-0, but that was at the CBS. 
Anyway, let's keep everything crossed. Oh, and the matches are around Saturday the 27th, but the days and television, etc, etc, haven't been finalised. So, that really was all of your sport. Bye. So, we've drawn with Sheffield Wednesday, have we? And Sarah tells me they're the elves to it, to woo. Did Dave's plea to you to send Mr. Spokes bag work? Let's find out from him. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello and welcome to your very own Spot Postbag. It's a unique and great opportunity to communicate with your fellow listeners and possibly help them as well. Postbag's been very light over Christmas, especially and New Year. To quote from Eric Sace, who did so much to promote activities for visually impaired people, use it or lose it. Here's Amy, who was brave enough to phone up the Postbag answer phone on 024-76-717-522, pressing 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leaving a message. Here she is with a belated Christmas greeting and a message about the much-missed Rosie. Hello, everybody. This is Amy Fennell. This is my Christmas message. I know it seems to be a bit of sadness because of Rosie. I know we'll give a good friend of this week, and it, it will go well. And Rosie would want us to get on with things. She just said, she just, she just said, get on with it. I, I know she was. I remember meeting Rosie when I first came to visit the sound when it was myself, Chris and Mark Hubble. That was in 2010, I believe. A- anyway, that is good. That aside, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas and lots and lots of hope throughout the new year. And I hope it's a happy one. Thank you so much, Amy. I was very proud of Sheila for first nominating the Resource Centre for the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and then nominating Rosie and Trish to be honoured by the Queen. They both received the British Empire Medal and then went to Buckingham Palace for the garden party. Please tell us about your exploits, Amy, in the new year and you as well. Here's another inspiring woman who makes a real effort to communicate with you. Here's Julia with the latest report. The day we held a torch for Jesus. It was Christmas, the birthday of the baby Jesus, so we had a party for him. Good old Nigel is in charge of Coventry Torch, and he welcomed us all. 
Some of us wore Christmas jumpers and earrings and hats, but my friend Jen just wore a funny hat with a donkey and a Santa. Good old Philip King played on his organ and we all sang carols. We ate Diane's lovely lemon drizzle cake and had a Christmas quiz when Ray made us feel his decorations and Nigel talked about the lights and holly. They were knitted decorations and a candle and Diane came round with something smelly but it was not my friend John. We all had gifts and sang Silent Night. It was a good party, and I think the baby Jesus enjoyed it. I liked it because my friend John wasn't there. He can't have everything. Next year will be a good year because there'll be no pandemic, and there'll probably be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Except my friend John, he's used up all his goodwill in 2023. Happy New Year, everybody. Lots of love, Julia. Happy New Year to you, Julia. And to Philip King, who brailed my birthday and Christmas cards to you. Edwina gave you a New Year greeting last week. I wonder if you were given a two-night stay in a hotel anywhere. Where would he go? Perhaps he could tell me. That's what happened to Edwina, and she was in no doubt where she wanted to go. I've had quite an exciting time in the build-up to Christmas this year, and one of them was to have a two-night stay in Oxfordshire. It was my choice. I could go anywhere for two nights, and I chose Oxfordshire to go down memory lane because of course I used to live in Dinkley and started school there so the first thing I did with Sylvia was to take or she was driving obviously uh, to tell her to go to Appleford on Thames Appleford on Thames is a small village between Abingdon and Dicker and there's just one main road that comes from Abingdon straight through Appleford and round to Dicker. Um, we arrived at Appleford on Thames later in the afternoon on the Friday so I took, took her around the back of the Saxon church which had the River Thames running along beside it. And just across the field, as we stood at the first stile behind the church, I was looking to a great big oak tree. Now at that oak tree, I told Sylvia, this was where my late twin brother, Edward, had his ashes put in the water because when he was a little boy from about ten he became a fisherman and he was very keen and won some different uh, competitions but his last wish from the age of about eleven he kept reminding me I want my ashes in the Thames at Appleford because that is where my granny lived 
and we went for holidays regular. So when he died, I did do his last wish. So Sylvia was rather taken by the size of all the pastures around there. All of the fields were cornfields or uh, covered with eating cows, <laughs> grazing and making sure we have our milk. So that was part of my childhood, you see. We went through Appleford very slowly, and my granny lived in a black and white house. So Sylvia said, what number? I said, number eight. And she drove along, and she crossed the road and parked outside. And she was telling me what it was like outside in the open garden. There's many changes. The small ornate fencing that had been there for years was gone and it had all been opened, the, the plants gone and a uh, um, cemented parking area for two vehicles. And we'll hear more about Edwina's holiday next week. Edwina can no longer hear Outlook due to being profoundly deaf as well as blind, and she may not be able to hear her own voice, but that doesn't stop her having a go at speaking to you, and she expresses herself so beautiful, and with such detail to make you feel you are in the place she's speaking about. And that's the talent of our very own polar explorer, Mark Wood, friend of the Monday Club, who's broadcast a postbag from the most extreme corners of the planet, puts Outlook on a different level to other media, let alone talking newspapers. Mark first phoned up from the North Pole after telling the Monday Club he'd be in touch. He then promised to take blind and partially sighted people every step of the way up Mount Everest. Just listen to Mark's broadcast to you from Mount Everest with his five-side chat style. Just sat down and I've just come down to sit alone and enjoy the view in silence. Um, but obviously sit with you guys as well, so imagine yourself sitting with me. Um, it's a rocky area. Um, so just find yourself a seat. <laughs> Uh, and relax and do your rucksack a little bit and then we'll look at the views together so what I can see in front of me is little ants of yellow tents uh, about 600 meters below me and that's base camp stretching out for it looks like uh, probably one or two k's uh, from left to right um, and base camp is like a a small sort of town at this time of year um, and you've got sort of red and blue tents in there but sort of may majority yellow looking beyond the tents itself you've then got the Cumble Icefall which I mentioned quite a lot in front of me from my peripheral of left to right there is just pure beautiful uh, seven eight thousand meter peak mountains with it just looks like a postcard or a picture out of a, one of these great sort of books that you can buy. 
And this is what Mark put on his website. Grab a front row seat to isolation, extreme cold, and the scientific research of Expedition Solo 100 podcasts. Each day, Mark will communicate expedition information to his support team at the Get Lost podcast. From geographic updates to wellness checks and special surprise guests. Mark Solo 100 Podcasts will bring his journey to life in real time for free to listeners around the world. As part of Mark's ongoing support for the blind and partially sighted community, he is to stand in extreme areas of the planet to describe on podcasts what he can see in front of him, the curvature of the earth from Mount Everest. 36 degrees of a white horizon in Antarctica and standing alone on the floating sea ice in the Arctic, bringing people into the moment through sound to stand shoulder to shoulder with him, opening the world to others who still have the desire to explore. And he gives a link to Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. So Mark wants to take you with him via postbag on his journey to the Arctic alone for a hundred days. I'd like to know if you're excited by this and also if you can be inspired by Mark and the listeners you hear in postbag to try to keep postbag going. I can't do it without you. Thank you very much for your messages this week and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks, Dave, for your post bag this week. Uh, now, New Year is traditionally a time to make New Year resolutions. But as we all know, many of these fall by the wayside rather rapidly. If you're one of those people who can stick with it, well done. But, however, let's find out more about resolutions in, in general. Regardless of whether you're already a committed fitness fan or you are new to the world of be- well-being and exercise, Knowing how to help your body recover from the festive excesses is really important. Taking a little time to think about what you want to do and also what you want to achieve will elicit better results from your hard work and exercise. Let's uh, have a look and help you with a few top tips on preparing for your New Year health kick. It's a proven fact that many a a smaller, more achievable New Year resolution will mean your chances of sticking to it and making it happen are far greater. Aim for specific goals that you can measure and pitch against a time frame. For example, I want to lose £4 in four weeks. That's easily achievable, and you can monitor your progress too, which means you are more likely to succeed. Also, don't be swayed or influenced by other people, celebrities or role models. Remember, this is your New Year resolution, your body and your health kick. What works for one person won't necessarily work for another. So make a plan and focus on only what you want to achieve. Regularly remind yourself of the benefits you will enjoy if you stick to and achieve your resolution. 
try keeping a checklist of the positive changes associated with your New Year resolution. Note your progress in a diary as it makes everything seem so much more real. And don't give yourself a hard time if you have an occasional day of relapse. You can't be perfect all the time. However, just remember to get back on course as quickly as possible. New Year resolutions are, are very personal, of course. However, for many people, the most common ones include, firstly, losing weight. Portion control is paramount here. So fill up on low-calorie foods uh, that are high in dietary fibre, such as vegetables, pulses, legumes, and whole-grain carbohydrates. And be mindful of foods which contain hidden sugar, salt, and fat. Then, eating a healthier diet. It's easy to get your five-a-day portions of fruit and vegetables. Add a banana and glass of apple juice to your breakfast. Chop up a salad or make some soup for lunch. And then add a couple of portions of steamed vegetables to your dinner. Plus a mid-morning and mid-afternoon snack of a piece of fruit or some carrot sticks means you'll exceed the recommended five portions. And, of course, there's the giving up smoking. There's a lot of support out there if you're serious about giving up smoking. You don't need to do it alone, so why not make it your New Year resolution to see your GP for advice on getting started. And finally, doing more exercise. Set yourself achievable goals and you're far more likely to succeed. I guess among our listeners there are some interesting, different and challenging resolutions made last week. Let's know about it in postbag. Do you remember last week Keith started the moving story of the close relationship or friendship between Kevin Sinfield and Rob Burrows, uh, which he now concludes? As a sport that lacks the often huge professional salaries seen in rugby union or football, rugby league has the potential to incubate special connections, which see some players remain in a single club their entire careers, as did Rob. Says Kevin... We come into a team sport where you rely heavily on each other. You need to have trust and honesty in the way you go about things when you are playing in a team together, and that friendship is an extension of what developed on the pitch. The pair hope the book will appeal to people of all ages. It includes two dozen powerful statements about friendship, each with a charming picture from the pen of leading illustrators including Rob Biddulph, Reggie Brown and Jill Smith. Thus, we're together, shoulder to shoulder, shows two children with wooden swords and shields play-fighting, another friend dressed in a dragon costume. And you help me do the impossible, shows a nervous boy on a bicycle being encouraged to learn to ride by his friend. We went about selecting the bits that portrayed how we felt about each other. It was something really enjoyable to do, says Kevin. Because of their two-year age gap, when Rob and Kevin first met as young teenagers, having signed professional contracts, their friendship didn't develop until they were 18 and 20. We were both playing first team at the Rhinos, and as with most friends, for some reason you just click. Rob has always been incredibly funny, Now, of course, he has some communication issues, but he still has the same sense of humour, Kevin continues. We live 40 miles apart, but spending time with each other is important. It remains a really strong friendship, although, of course, it's had to change because of the communication piece. 
When I see him, it's time together to have a laugh. You want to help. No one wants to see a friend in strife and having to face this on his own. Recalling Rob's diagnosis today still has the power to upset this tough yet sensitive athlete, and he prefers not to talk about it in detail. I can't imagine what it was like for Lindsay and the children. I can only speak about it as a close friend. But yes, it was devastating, recalls Kevin. It had a massive effect. I was in the tailspin for some time, trying to understand exactly what it meant. You think people who bring light into your life are going to be around for a long, long time, and the realisation that this might not be the case is pretty dark. But as I expected, Rob has shown us all what fighting really is, and the Borough family, who are a tight-knit unit, have shown us what love is. They've done an incredible job of dealing with adversity and tragedy. Rob and Lindsay, together with Kevin, have helped to raise huge sums for charities that help people living with MND, as well as investing in research. They've also collectively helped raise the profile of this cruel and devastating disease. Kevin's first fundraising event for the MND Association was back in 2020. Since then, he's taken on ever more extreme events, including his Ultra 7-inch 7 Challenge last November which saw him burst into Manchester's Old Trafford at half-time in the the Men's Rugby League World Cup final to raucous acclaim from the near-capacity crowd. His fundraising target of £777,777, Rob played in the number 7 shirt for the Rhinos, was nearly doubled. There are some amazing people out there who do incredible things for charity, says Kevin, when I ask about his motivation. Myself and the team try to do our little bit in our own small way, he adds, with profound understatement. And he's drawing attention to the fundraising events for MND. The more brutal it looks, the better. The more people are willing to to part with pennies, says the man whose MBE in 2014 was topped with an OBE in 2021 for services to rugby league and charitable fundraising. This week he announced he will be running an ultramarathon every day for seven days in seven cities. Running has been a vehicle to show Rob how much we are willing to endure for him, he says. If he's going to fight, we are going to do our bit to show him how inspired we are by him. When you understand the plight and this prognosis of what this disease does, you want to make some good come of it. I really like the title of the book. It's been important to us that I can help him with the journey that he's on. No one can walk in his shoes, but we're there if he needs us. That's a touching account of a really true friendship. I think we all like to look out the window from time to time, taking the picturesque garden, watching the sunrise, or just contemplating nature. But one man said, who needs windows? And moved his family into an underground bunker. Andrew Buncombe met him and wrote this story, which Sue reads. There are many things Reuben Romero enjoys about living in an underground nuclear bunker. Surprisingly, one of them is the amount of space. 
His vestige of the Cold War spreads over 6,000 square feet and has ceilings 6.5 feet high. In winter, it's less cold than outside. In summer, it feels cooler. Another bonus, it was built to withstand a nuclear strike from the Soviet Union. At the front is a 3,000 pound blast door and at the rear there is an escape hatch. Romero, 47, who is married and has four children aged between 14 and 21, says that while he always liked to have a plan for things and kept a store of durable food, he didn't consider himself a hardcore survivalist or prepper when they bought it. Rather, he wanted to create a home where his family felt safe. Yet he admits that the experience of living there has hardened that aspect of his life. It's hard to have a bunker and not be a bit of a prepper. You lean into it a little bit, he says. Recently, some friends suggested he drill a hole to create a sunroof. He scoffed at the idea. I'm 95% secure in the event of nuclear strike. I'm not going to ruin that because a sunroof might look cool. Romero, who moved into the property in the summer of 2020, also admits that while they have electricity and water from the local utility company, he and his family stock up on food and water. I don't have any predictions about the world. I'm not moving in out of fear, he says. I'm not like, hey, we're coming up to World War Three, although with the state of things today, we're a lot closer than when I bought my bunker. Romero, who grew up in Pennsylvania, asked for the location of his property not to be revealed, other than say it is in the Midwest. The nearest town is a 20-minute drive away, though he and his wife have homeschooled their children, a decision based on a combination of religious beliefs, convenience and concern about standards at the local school. He's worked on a, as an online marketer for 20 years. His wife, Joan, also works remotely. They had previously lived in Niagara Falls, New York, and Peachtree City, Georgia, and when they started to think about a place to retire, they considered various options. They wanted a place all their relatives could visit, he and his wife each are one of six siblings, and relax. They saw one such bunker online and were intrigued. They put in an offer, but didn't get it. When their current one came up for sale, Romero was determined to bag it, but paid less than the current median price of a house in the US, which is between £266,000 and £298,000. Built for workers who operated the so-called AT&T transcontinental coaxial cable system, which was used for high-capacity transmission for long-distance communications, the bunker would originally have been fitted with supplies to last up to two weeks after a nuclear strike. The system was used extensively from the 1930s to the 70s, when the development of satellites and fibre-optic communication made the technology redundant. It's understood that there were hundreds of these stations. 
On chat boards and Reddit threads, people swap information about the L system, which had several lines stretching across the nation. Romero believes his was part of L3. Some of those interested in the subject became intrigued after seeing striking images of the towers that still dot the landscape, taken by photographer Spencer Harding of Tucson, Arizona. Harding says he initially got interested from climbing on one near where I grew up. Many years later in college I was looking for a photo project and fell down a rabbit hole, he adds. I always thought the parabolic reflectors had a beautiful and distinct shape. You could see them from miles away. Romero says his favourite thing about living in a bunker is never having to change windows. I never have to change my roof, he adds. I mean, you feel pretty secure if anything bad happens. He has his own YouTube channel called Underground Living and posts regular updates on TikTok about his life, but he wants to do more with the property and the 13 acres that came with it. Romero says he receives inquiries from people who would like to live in their own bunker. He helps as much as he can. He doesn't know how many places like his there are, but fears many other amazing spaces like his could be decaying. What do friends think when they see his home for the first time? There's probably some people who think it's a little weird, he says, but I'd say that more than 50% are like, oh yeah, that's cool. Each to their own, I say. While it sounded last week as we'd started the next item halfway through, no we hadn't in fact, and so here's Bill to complete the story of the vet who left his comfortable English home and uprooted to a remote island. As Hollins was a generalist, his segue into island veterinary practice was never a daunting feat. It was a one-month locum post covering for a friend in the Falklands eventually led him to St Helena, mini Galapagos, 250 unique species, equivalent to one-sixth of the UK's total endemic biodiversity. He became the island's first permanent vet after sending his CV to St Helena's governor. Top of his priorities, aside from saving Jonathan's life, rescuing St Helena plover bird, its national pride. Roaming feral cats had hunted the endemic species to near extinction, and it was Holland's job, with the help of paravets he trained, the animal equivalent of paramedics, to euthanise the pitiful moggies humanely. Aside from routine neuterings and surgeries, Holland's conducted autopsies regularly for scientific research. Then there were the downright bizarre jobs. Once a year he joined St Tristan's natives for Ratting Day. The annual competition was born from the islanders' attempts to reduce the rat population. Today involves docking as many rat tails as possible, without killing them, in a bonding exercise for the community. Hollins judges the prize for the longest tail. Jonathan was always his star patient. I really bonded with him. 
recognises my voice. I don't think it's love, it's food, a Pavlovian response. I love that. I'll stroke him and warm his neck, and he loves that. He's very gentle, unlike his male counterpart David, who is really aggressive. There are four tortoises on the island, Jonathan and relative youngsters David, 54, Fred, 51, and Emma, 54. Last year David upturned Fred, who has mobility issues, after he emerged from a mud pool. Collins arrived to find him helpless on his back, legs sprawled in the air. David was just there gloating. Potential murderer, Collins cries. Thankfully, he managed to rock Fred a few times before flipping him over, thus saving his life. This was not David's first attack. Several years earlier, he had targeted Jonathan, the elder tortoise munched on his food, unaware of the 200 kilo battering ram heading towards him. He rammed Jonathan almost head on and flipped his neck up in the air. It was slightly oblique, otherwise David would have severed Jonathan's head and killed him. It absolutely terrified me. Poor Hollins suffered so many near-death scares with Jonathan, it's a wonder his nerves aren't shredded. On another occasion, Jogger telephoned him to say Jonathan was lying, spread-eagled on Plantation House's paddock. Fearing the worst, Collins raced there to find his leathery friend doing a good imitation of death. He was flopped out completely, says Hollins. It's amazing how tortoises draw their legs inside their shell. Before mentally putting Operation Go Slow into action, realised the tortoise's eyes were shut, in fact, signalling he was alive. He gently prodded Jonathan's sinewy neck, and to his delight, the tortoise's eyes flicked open. I was so happy, I almost cried with relief, Hollins re recalls. I gave him a big hug. It was a, quite disturbing a grumpy old great-grandfather having a snooze in the afternoon. It transpired Jonathan had been sunbathing, a behaviour common among cold-blooded reptiles, one not often observed among tortoises in warmer climates. However, St Helena, where Jonathan first arrived in 1882 as a gift for the governor, has cold and damp wintry days, and this was his way of remedying that. Today, Holland's ex-girlfriend, goes by the name of Teeny Lucy for her petite frame as for the four tortoises. St Helena has yet to find a suitable replacement for him. It's home to just 4,300 people. Island life is not for everyone. There are some people that didn't last six months, he said. They didn't realise what living on an island is like. They don't have coffee shops and restaurants. The shops run out of things, and there's the tyranny of isolation. Over the past year, cargo deliveries have been late several times. We ran out of milk, toothpaste, and chocolate, and that was serious. Ireland was in desperation, he laughs. The shortfall got so bad, Hollins was forced to eat hated toffees and nougat, 
he had left to linger at the bottom of assortment boxes. But he never lost his love of living among the elements. I love islands, because they're a microcosm of humanity, he says. It's a crucible of what we are, with all the challenges that go with it. And ironically, we're walled in, not by walls, by the sea. If he stayed in the UK, Collins would have undoubtedly led a more comfortable life. He has no regrets. I like investigations. I love the detective work. I don't like managing a business. That's not me. And so to tie myself down in that way is difficult. I've lost out on other things, like having children and so on. I've enjoyed my life, and it's been interesting. Closer to home, Alan relates more of the happiness and hardships of early 20th century Coventry in hurdy-gurdy days. Going up the town on a Saturday night was a treat we always looked forward to, as there was always so much to see. This only happened if our dad was sober and had a spare shilling in his pocket, which he had won gambling. We used to watch him get ready to go to the pub as usual, and if he said, Come on, I'll take you two up to the town to see you the shops if you hurry up and get ready. We'd be so excited and really hurry. On the street corners would be the boy selling papers, shouting something which seemed to be in a foreign language. With a folded paper in his outstretched hand, he would push it into people's faces to try and sell out as quickly as possible, especially if it was winter time. In the market square were the street traders, the chestnut sellers, selling a pennyworth of hot chestnuts from his brazier, the hot potato man with his barrow carrying an oven with a glowing fire underneath, a little sack of coal on the front of the barrow. All round the top of the oven were spikes on which were impaled potatoes in their jackets. The man shouted, Two pence for four! And in the summertime there was the ice cream man, Everybody shouted one against the other like, Ripe bananas, two a penny, oranges, two a penny, rosy apples, two pence a pound, etc. The stalls were lit with naphtha lamps, the quacks guaranteeing their medicine and pills to cure every ache and pain. If I remember rightly, there were three pubs in this square. The Hole in the Wall, next door to a fishmonger's shop, the Market Tavern, and the Dolphin. Leading out of the square was a covered market hall with a clock on a tower, with faces on all four sides. On Saturday nights the butchers auctioned off their meat. They kept open until 11pm, and people waited hours for pieces of beef, which they got for a shilling and one and sixpence. The market hall was a very attractive place at Christmas time. There were Chinese lanterns and paper chains festooned one soul to the other, with Merry Christmas, spelt out in gold letters, and Father Christmas with a bran tub and lucky dips. After we had been to the market, our dad would take us to Round the Tan, as he called it, buying us a toy from the Sixpence Bazaar down Smith Street, and sometimes taking us to the railway station to see the trains come in. We loved that. It was so exciting seeing an express rushing through the station, making such a deafening noise. When a train did stop, the porters shouted, Coventry, all change! Opening and shutting, or banging, 
all the carriage doors, and the guard waved a little green flag and blew a whistle when it was time for the train to go out again. Outside the station there were bootblacks, shining shoes for a few coppers, and a line of handsome cabs waiting to pick up passengers and their luggage and take them to wherever they wanted to go. To get to the station, which was in Eaton Road, we went down Hartford Street past a pub called the Peeping Tom, with a figure looking out of an upstairs window. We were both very interested in this figure, because he had no eyes, and we wanted to know why. Our dad told us it was because he was supposed to have peeked at Lady Godiva when she rode round the streets of Coventry, hundreds of years ago, without any clothes, mounted on a beautiful white horse, to remove the taxes put upon the people by her husband, Earl Leofric. She had said she would ride naked on condition everybody kept indoors, with the windows and doors barred, which they did, except peeping Tom, but he was struck blind before he could see her. We loved these joints with our dad, but there were few and far between. He used to take us on such a long way, making us so tired, I used to cry, so he had to carry me. When he was away from the pub, his pals and our gran, he was a different man. When we told ma'am how kind he had been carrying us, because I was tired, she grumbled at him for taking us too far, but at the same time she began to puzzle and plan a way to get him out of that court. She knew he would never leave the court, and he would never leave the mother. She would always have to come with us wherever we went, which was a big problem for our ma'am. There was a little shop in Silver Street where they sold faggots and peas, which attracted our dad, and some Saturdays he would take us there. Everybody sat on high stools up to the counter, and steaming hot peas were put on little saucers. We only had peas, as we didn't like faggots. To get to Silver Street we would go straight up High Street, through Broadgate, down Cross Cheaping, and the Burgess, passing Hale Street, where the Opera House was. Silver Street was just inside Bishop's Street, opposite Wells Street. The pig market was at the end of the street, which went into Cook Street, where the old city gate is. Both streets were full of pubs and courts, and of course a pawn shop. Going through Cook Street, we came out in Chauntry Place by the side of the Hippodrome, where there were some more poor little houses. Opposite was the fire station, and we were just in time to see the fire engine coming out, bells ringing, horses rearing. There were four horses as far as I can remember. Great excitement. The firemen standing upon the platform, everybody watching to see which way they went. Our dad was itching to follow, but we were much too tired and wanted to go home. Our dad loved his Coventry, and he knew it like the back of his hand. He knew the story and history of Lady Godiva, and knew where all the city gates were, Gosford Gate, Swansville Gate, Cook Street Gate, Whitefriars Gate, and Spon Gate. He loved to take us to see a Godiva procession. He was as excited as we were on hearing the bands playing. There was always excitement at general election time, especially when the result of the poll was announced. This was declared by the mayor from a balcony at the King's Head Hotel at midnight. This was at the corner of Hartford Street in Broadgate. 
All Coventry seemed to turn out for the results to come through. We weren't allowed to sit up, but I can remember hearing the story of how our man fainted and had to be held up so as not to be trampled on by the crowd. There were always lots of casualties. Everybody went mad, and the police on horseback had to take control. Many of you will know the name Bruce Watson, the Australian singer. Bruce had an interesting story to tell about his great-grandfather who recorded Tasmanian folk songs onto a wax cylinder for posterity. Dave went along to the Tump Folk Club at the Humber to meet Bruce and find out all about it. G'day, Coventry Talking Newspaper. It's wonderful to be here in Coventry. <laughs> all the way from Australia. Okay, how long have you been in Britain? <laughs> oh, about a month now, actually. About yeah, a month. How yes. holiday for you then? It's a bit of a, it's both a holiday and I'm doing about, um, I think, 27 uh, gigs as well. So it's a working holiday, but there's plenty of time between some of the gigs. We've just been up in Scotland and uh, didn't have many gigs up there, so it was a lovely chance to see that beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Is it, so how's your style of, of entertaining? Is it well, folk singing? It, I, I call it folk, but it's all contemporary in the sense that I all the material that I do is original, so I've written it myself. Every now and then I use traditional tunes, um, but I think it's in the folk style in that it is, if you think about folk music as being telling stories, like folk, folk music used to be the newspaper of the day, the broadside ballads, yeah. and a, a lot of that is the sort of thing I do. I like to tell stories. I also like to just entertain and have a little bit of fun. So it's all, all a, bit, a bit of a mix. But in some of my songs I do tackle fairly serious issues like you know the environment and racism and um, the climate change even and things like that. So, yeah, yes. it's, a bit, it's a real mix, really. So it, it's kind of partly satire? Some of it is. So you do that, yeah. Yeah, some of it is. Yeah, yeah. some of it's satire. I, I probably do less satire than I used to do very early yeah. on. Um, and now I still use sometimes humour to, to make a little point. You know, I've, I've got a song about pangolins, for example, these little animals. Of course, um, yes. Uh, and it's a funny song, but it talks yeah. about how they're actually very endangered and so on. So, That's you know, right, but yeah. if you make a point with humour, it's a lot it's yeah. a lot better than trying to preach to people. I never try to preach to people. No, I don't think that's right. any fun at all. Okay, thanks a lot. And you're, you're also a children's entertainer as well. Yes, I am. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, um, um, I've been doing that for quite a long time. I've got four children of my own, or yeah. with my wife, and that was when I started writing children's songs because they gave me all the ideas. I hardly had to come up with any ideas. I just <laughs> wrote down the things that they said or the thoughts that they had and um, we had a whole bunch of songs. So now I've got one. Of, I've got a lot of albums. I've got eight albums altogether but yeah. one of them is specifically a children's album. Yeah. What, what kind of songs? Yeah. Well, they're funny, silly songs. You yeah. know, the, the title track of the children's album is Are We There Yet? And it's, I may do it tonight, I'm not sure, but it's really just about um, how kids go in the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah, we're all we there yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have got uh, a, a fascinating ancestry. Well, yeah. yes, I think I know what you're getting at. I, yeah. It's more fascinating than what you're getting at. In fact, I, you know, as an Australian, I've got a lot of, I had a lot of ancestors that came out um, in the, as convicts uh, yes. in 1788 and 89 and 90 and, um, but also I think what you're talking about, uh, my great grandfather was actually a man who recorded the last speaker of any Tasmanian language and um, 
Uh, I've written a song about that called The Man and the Woman and the Edison Phonograph. And uh, that, that woman, well, she was called Fanny Cochrane Smith, and she mm-hmm. was... Um, she was born on, on, in Bass Strait on an island and she learnt uh, the songs and stories of all over Tasmania and then all of her country people died yeah. for one reason or another. Oh um, and so she was the last one with this knowledge of the stories and the songs and, and um, my great-grandfather recorded those on an old Edison phonograph, that very, you know, the wax cylinder. Fantastic. And these are the only recordings that exist of those languages and those songs. So it's quite important, you know. So I'm very um, proud, but it's also very poignant too, you know, um, what it means, um, what it stands for. But because of those recordings and, you know, other written records and so on, um, the the Aboriginal people of Tasmania have actually recreated a language from those various sources, and it's taught today in schools in Tasmania. And that's all down to your great-granddad. Well, it's partly down to my great-granddad. He definitely played a very big role in that, so that's a really, really, really good, wonderful thing. Yes. Yes. And and you've got the actual recording of her voice on your CD. I do. I do. Yes. Yes. It's quite. um, It's very chilling, actually. You know, to think that this voice. um, The recording was made in 1903, so it's 120 years ago, and that voice is still out there in the world. And the wonderful thing was, as well as singing songs and so on, she actually gave English translations of the songs as well. Yes. So it's like a bit of a, like a Rosetta Stone of the language. So that's been really, really, really important. So, so what were, were the words of the songs? What, what did they uh, relate to? Oh, there were different things. Like um, one I, I remember is the spring song, and it's all about what's happened at spring. Because Aboriginal people you know, lived on the land, and so the passing of seasons was, was very important. Yes. Seasons, of course, in Australia are very different from the seasons. It's not autumn, winter, spring. But um, the spring song is actually about that time of year when, you know, the birds start singing again and, and the flowers come out. She says the fuchsias are on top and, the, you know, the, ba- the flowers are out and the birds are singing. And she says this lovely Tasmanian thing, which is also a little bit British. She says the clouds are all sunny, <laughs> which is, I think, very, very Tasmanian because they have a lot of clouds there too. Yeah. <laughs> so have you been to Tasmania? Many, 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 many times. times. It's what you like. Yeah, I love Tasmania. It's a very beautiful place. Yeah. It's very beautiful. It's, um, it has a much milder climate than most of the rest of Australia. Yes. And you know, lovely mountains and beautiful yeah. beaches. And, you know, I've, 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 a lot of the time I've been in Tasmania has actually been connected with that song. And through that song, so the man that did the recording, Horace Watson, was my great-grandfather. Yeah. But I also met through that song um, a Tasmanian elder called Ronnie Summers, whose great-great-great-grandmother was Fanny Cochran smith the one who my great-grandfather recorded. Yeah. And he was a singer. He, he, unfortunately, he passed away about two years ago. But for many, many, many times, we sang that song together about our, about our ancestors. Yeah. It was a quite moving thing to do. Recording her songs of the land and the sea. 
There's a button on the wall There next to the photo If you press it you can hear The ghosts of her songs As they echo Through the halls in that museum In Hobart A scratchy reminder Of all we've done wrong The man and the woman And the innocent photograph Salvaging pieces of song Man's black cylinder, story of progress. The song lives on, but the singers are gone. Thank you there to Bruce Watson. The Tump Folk Folk Club meets on Thursday nights at 8 pm at the Humber Pub, Humber Road, Coventry. Thank you and bye for now. It's funny, isn't it? Bruce is a name I always associate with Australia for some reason. Uh, which, however, that brings us to the end of Outlook for this week. So from the team and me, Nigel Hewin, it's goodbye until next week. <laughs>